to welcome Sir Vinci's Merley from Partners in Culturally Appropriate Care, um, otherwise known as PICAC. PICAC are a government funded project aimed at supporting workers um, to develop culture, uh, to provide culturally appropriate care and also to raise awareness. Sir uh, Vinci um, will uh, give a brief overview of the organisation too, but I would just like to welcome Savinch. Good morning, everybody. Um, firstly, I'd like to apologise for my voice. It's a little bit crackly because I'm just getting over the flu, but um, welcome today. And before I start, I'd like to um, show my respect and acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land of elders past and present on which we meet on this on which this meeting is taking place today. So today we'll be briefly looking at um, different concepts of diversity. I'll be discussing, uh, you know, what culture is, what stereotyping is, what generalisations are. We'll be looking at effective communication skills with culturally and linguistically diverse older people. Uh, we'll be looking at some barriers to effective communication, what good cross-cultural communication is, and we'll discuss a little bit about where you can obtain resources that will help you with your, with your jobs. Slowly and in a loud voice. The receptionist repeated the request three times, drawing the attention of the whole centre. Natasha looked very unhappy and went away. So, would speaking loudly and slowly help the communication problem, in your opinion? Loudly, like making, you know, saying those words louder. If that person's not understanding you, it doesn't matter how loud you say the word, they're still not going to understand what you're saying. How might the client or how might Natasha be feeling after being spoken to this way? Not feeling very good about herself. So, and, and this one, just take this question back with you and just think, you know, if you were that receptionist within that service, what would you have done differently um, to break that communication barrier with Natasha. And I think the main issue, I guess, in that scenario is the fact that she did have a very strong accent and she may have been talking English, but the receptionist still wasn't understanding her. And this is just a little slide on the use of interpreters and bilingual, uh, bilingual workers. Um, uh, I guess by law within Australia, professional interpreting, um, professional interpreting is a specialised skill, and you are required to be um, trained and NATI accredited to be a professional interpreter. Professional interpreters generally within the sector are used for medical purposes, legal, and anything which relates to financial or confidential situations. 
Whereas by, how many people in the room, put your hand up if you actually speak a ling language other than English. So we've got a few bilingual workers in the room. Bilingual workers within the aged care sector um, are, can be used to assist with clients and residents that they're working with within their services um, with activities of daily living. These are just the elements of communication that we discussed before, so your verbal and your non-verbal. So having a look at some gestures that may have um, different meanings, which is your non-verbal communication. Um, these gestures may, may be offensive in some cultures, so it's just to be aware of when you're using a hand gesture or you know, any type of non-verbal body language or gesture um, that it may, may be, um, have a different meaning in a different culture. So your circle finger, the circle finger, like we would say, okay. That's, you know, to form a circle with your finger. Um, does anyone, is anyone aware of any cultures that that gesture may be offensive in or have a different meaning? So the okay gesture, um, it can be obscene in some places such as Brazil and Germany. It's actually uh, the gesture to describe a bodily orifice. So in France, that, that same gesture means uh, zero or worthless. And in Japan, that's the okay gesture actually means money. So you can see the, the variances with those different cultural groups. Beckoning with the index finger in most parts of the world is considered extremely rude. Did anyone know that to sit with the soles of your feet um, or shoe showing could be offensive to anyone? So exposing the lowest or the dirtiest part of your body shows disrespect in many Asian cultures. Nodding your head up and down to say yes, um, it doesn't actually you know, necessarily mean yes in in different countries or in different cultural groups. So just to have that awareness. To pat, who's ever patted someone on the head? A child, maybe. We all pat our dogs, but. <laughs> um, to pat someone on the head um, in Southeast Asia, many people believe that the spirit or the soul resides in the head of an individual and it's, it's actually considered very disrespectful to touch another person on the head, including children. You know, in some cultures, passing an item to somebody else with one hand may be offensive. You know, they, the ex expectation may to be used both hands. And smiling, Smiling, you know, it may be a universal gesture, um, but smiling often or infrequently does vary from culture, culture to culture. And every culture has um, rules for social interaction as well. 
an example of that would be, you know, um, eye contact when you're talking to another person. Uh, you know, eye contact when you're talking, say for example, if talking to a Taiwanese resident, you know, to have direct eye contact would be classified, you know, would be um, viewed as being very disrespectful within that culture. But it is an expectation in the West. So, you know, in Australia, if you're not actually looking at someone in the eye when you're talking to them, the, you know, the, the thing is that they probably think you're not even listening to them. So you're expected to look at someone in the eye when they're talking to you. Culture also um, greatly influences attitudes about physical contact. <clears throat> So South American, people from South American cultural backgrounds, you know, they like to stand close to the other person when they're communicating with them. So um, I guess uh, in, in Australia we talk about personal space, like so we stand a fair distance from someone, we don't get directly in their face when we're having a discussion with them. Whereas in South America it's completely normal to be standing very close to someone when you're talking to them and it's not seen as invading their private space. In Northern European countries, you are seen as invading private space if you're standing too close. And different cultures regulate displays of emotion differently. There's so many, you know, so many examples that can be given there as well. So some cultures use different standards for loudness, you know, the speed of delivery of what they're saying, you know, the silence or the pauses that they have between their words, attentiveness, and how long they take to actually respond to what's being said to them. These are all the things that are your nonverbal communication um, that has different rules in social interaction and communicating with individuals from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Coming to the end of it, these are just some strategies um, to use, and we've talked about all of them throughout today. So, um, to effectively communicate with another person, you know, speak slowly and clearly, use short and simple sentences. So, if the people you're, you know, communicating with um, don't have a high English proficiency, try and keep it simple. Maintain normal volume, use different words to express the same idea, avoid jargon, respond to expressed emotions, but also be aware of what your emotions or your own feelings are. To have the awareness that people from some cultural backgrounds, that they may avoid disagreement at the expense of being honest. So, you know, they might really want to say no, but um, will still tell you, yes, that's fine. So if you're serving up tea, um, say someone from an Asian culture, uh, they may really want coffee, but because you're serving up tea, they don't want to put you out and make you go get them a coffee when you're serving tea. So you ask them, would you like a cup of tea? They'll say yes, instead of no, thank you. Can you get me a cup of coffee? Allow time for questions and clarification and use communication aids if necessary. Anyone in the room used communication tools 
when you're communicating with um, your clients or residents. Yeah. There's a lot of tools that are out there that you can access. Um, there's about 20 different culturally specific organisations across New South Wales. Most of them are in the Sydney metro area or Western Sydney, Inner West, etc. Um, that are specific to cultures that have resources that you can use. The Centre for Cultural Diversity um, in Victoria is actually the PCAC for Victoria and they were specifically funded to produce um, cultural communication resources in 25 different languages. So that's another, another service or another um, somewhere else where you can obtain resources to assist with communication. And with tech, and Mac has a, has a cultural library where you can borrow resources, physical resources. With technology these days though, um, if you use a smartphone or an Android phone, there are apps that you can actually get that um, have you know no that don't cost you anything, that can assist you with communicating. Thank you all today. I've come to the end of it. I hope you've enjoyed the presentation. I'll be um, around for about ten or fifteen minutes if you'd like to have a chat or ask me anything in particular. Um, and enjoy your lunch. Thank you. Time to take some questions for Savinch. If anybody's got any, we do have a microphone. Um, that's, we'll walk round. Does anybody have any questions for Savinch? Okay. Yeah, I got the question. Okay, so Savinch is actually, um, I'm of Turkish origin. I was born in Wollongong Hospital. So my parents, <laughs> my parents migrated to Australia back in the early 70s. Dad came to Wollongong to work in the steelworks. Um, and my name actually translates into the word happy. So, <laughs> any other questions? Look, if you've got any questions, um, I've put the, the PCAC um, website on there. You can actually flick inquiries through that as well. Um, and we have the contact details. I, I don't know if I've got them on there, but I've got cards. So if anyone wants a card to flick me an email later, um, just come up and I can um, give you one. So thank you. Hi there. Hi. Nice day, huh? Yeah, finally, right? Where are you from? Your English is perfect. San Diego. We speak English there. Oh, uh, no. Uh, <clears throat> where are you... Wrong. Well, I was born in Orange County, but I never actually lived there. Uh, I mean, before that. Before I was born. Yeah, like, well, where are your people from? Well, my great-grandma was from Seoul. Korean. I knew it. I was like, she's either Japanese or Korean. But I was leaning more towards Korean. Amazing. Yeah. <laughs> There's a really good teriyaki barbecue place near my apartment. I actually really like kimchi. Cool. What about you? Where are you from? San Francisco. But where are you from? No, I'm, I'm just American. Really? You're Native American? No, uh, just regular American. 
Oh, well, uh, I guess my grandparents are from England. Oh, well. Hello, Gandalf! What's all this then? Top of the morning to you. Let's get a sporty, sporty! Double, double, toil and trouble! Mind the gap! Beware, Jack the Ripper! Bloody hell! Pip, pip! Cheerio! I think your people's fish and chips are amazing. You're weird. Really? I'm weird? Must be a crane thing. <laughs> so that's just a, a short video clip that we use to demonstrate what's meant by cultural stereotyping. And we can see, like, when we watch that, where the stereotype happened. From her, her appearance, he presumed that she was born in a country other than America. So the difference between what a generalization, well, the difference between generalizations and stereotypes. So a generalization is a thought which is retained, it's retained consciously, it's descriptive and it's non-judgmental, and it's modified by, it could be modified by subsequent experience. Whereas when we talk about stereotypes, stereotypes are generally, they're retained unconsciously um, they are judgmental and not descriptive and may not necessarily be modified by any experience in particular that you've had. So just, just a few examples of, it's trying to say the same thing, but how it would be said as a generalisation, which would... I, it would not be offensive to anyone, whereas when we say, sometimes when we say things as stereotypes say, they may be offensive to individuals. So, you know, just as a stereotype, we've used Australians are selfish. How that can be rephrased as a generalisation is to say Western societies tend to be individualistic. The Swiss are uptight. You can say the Swiss tend to value efficiency and formality. Americans are show-offs. US Americans readily praise personal achievement is a nice way to rephrase that. And the Japanese never say what they think be rephrased by saying Japanese society values discretion and politeness. So when it's a stereotype, it's actually applied to, to every member of a particular group and um, stereotypes tend to limit understanding rather than broaden it. I'm just going to read out a couple of phrases and um, I just want you to say the first one or the second one. So I'm going to say, uh, you know, one is a stereotype and one is a generalisation and just get you to tell me which one the stereotype is. So the first phrase is all Americans are obese and the second one is Americans have a greater likelihood of being obese than other countries. Which one is the stereotype there? Absolutely. 
Hans might be really meticulous because he's Swiss. And the second phrase is, Hans is going to be really meticulous because he's Swiss. Yeah, the second one is a stereotype. Okay. Why is the second one the stereotype? Yeah, because they're sure he will be, and they, they phrase it that way. Alejandra might be late because Latin Americans are more likely to be impunctual, or Alejandra will be late because Latin Americans are never on time. Which one is the stereotype there? Second one because it applies to all Latin Americans. So that just gives you a little bit of an understanding between what stereotypes and generalizations are. I'm gonna put up a couple of images talking, just having a little bit of a look at Italian culture. And when you see this image, um, if you can please tell me, like if someone can, say, a stereotype relating to Italian culture and that actual image. Yeah, all Italians eat pasta is the stereotype. How could we rephrase that as a generalisation? Yeah, pasta is a popular dish in Italy. You could say something like, all Italians love soccer. Do we think all Italians love soccer? <laughs> there are probably some Italians out there that don't. So that's some tiramisu. Can we think of a stereotype in relation to, say, desserts? Yeah, yeah, so you could say dessert all Italians liked from a Swiss. Yeah. Mm. So that's actually an image of wine and cheese. And I guess a stereotype that you can use with that one would be that all Italians drink wine. So I, you get the gist of it. I won't go through any more of those. Um, it's basically when you apply a phrase or, um, you know, something to uh, the whole group, it's classified then as a stereotype. So just having a look at, look at this next slide. When we talk about Arab communities, do you think it's okay to call someone an Arab? So there's like different opinions, I guess, across the room. We've got people shaking, yeah, and no. Um, so Arabs are Arabs are a panethnicity of people. So their their native language is Arabic, and 
the word Arab is actually not, it's not a derogatory term and it doesn't leave like a negative connotation. So it's perfectly all right to use that word when you're describing someone from an Arab nation. It's just, it's the same as calling someone, I guess, um, Italian or Indian or Nigerian. Uh, the Arab world or the Arab nations actually consist of 22 different countries or Arabic-speaking countries. And population-wise, we're probably, probably looking at about 358 million people from Arab nations. Iran and Turkey are actually not classified as Arab nations, but we can see the ones that are classified as Arab nations are listed on the, on the map there. And Arab nations have a, a multitude of linguistic groups and religions, including Muslims, Christians, and Jews. So there's a lot of diversity with the languages that a pe people are speaking and there's a lot of diversity within religions across the Arab nations. Not... Yes, yes. But just as an example of the Arab, I'm talking about the religions across the Arab nations. So discussing religions there. To get a little bit of an idea about migration history of Arabs in Australia, um, Lebanese migrants, and the majority of our Arab Australians are from Lebanon, Egypt, Syria, Sudan, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, and Morocco. There were three waves of migration. The first one was actually before World War I due to economic factors. The second wave of migration was after World War II, and the third wave was uh, an immediate effect of the civil war in Lebanon in 1975. So they're the three waves of migration. In smaller num numbers, Muslim Egyptians arrived in Australia, or, sorry, Egyptian-born migrants settled in Australia mainly after World War II, so it was between uh, 1947 and 1971, um, and the majority of those individuals were Coptic Egyptians. The smaller number of Muslim Egyptians arrived um, between 1970 and 1980, just to get an idea. In recent times, um, Iraq has become the largest source of uh, Arabic or Arab migrants to Australia due to the uh, Iraq's involvement in the two Gulf Wars and the recent war on terror. The majority of Iraqi population is from a Muslim or Islamic background with a smaller number being Kurds or Sunni Muslims. Um, Assyrians are a Christian group amongst them as well. Over the last few years, Sudan, like we said when we were discussing, um, you know, the reasons why diversity is increasing in Australia, uh, Sudan emerged as second to Iraq as a source of arrival. So the first was Iraq and the second was Sudan. 
And at the moment, we're seeing more and more Syrian arrivals due to the hostilities that are happening in that country. That just, that just gives a little bit of an overview of um, the Arab community within Australia. Some perspectives that are, I guess, uh, the things that are important to individuals that are from an um, Arabic-speaking background, uh, honour is very important to these individuals um, and it's defended and protected at all costs. Shame is to be avoided at all costs. Insults and criticism is taken very seriously amongst this community group. So um, time is less rigid for these individuals where uh, the, their approach to time is more relaxed. Religion is central uh, and when we're discussing society, family or their tribe or, is the most important thing to these communities. Governments are secular but they still emphasise religion within those cultural groups back in their country of origin. Um, age and wisdom is honoured and wealth and uh, position are esteemed amongst these Arab communities. Talking about different perspectives of culture and not any culture in particular, but across all cultures, you know, things that are important. And these are, I guess, the little, a few of the things that we'll be looking at is going to be um, the, the not the surface culture of an individual, but that deeper culture, the non-visible culture. So when talking about raising children or beliefs about parenting, there are different things, I guess, that are important to people when it comes to raising children. There are different ways people discipline their children, um, you know, how they feed their children, how they allow them to play, um, do they vaccinate, don't they vaccinate, do they encourage them to learn outside of the school system. When we're talking about raising children, I guess one of the variations amongst culture is actually in the Western world, um, co-sleeping isn't a normal thing amongst Western cultures. And just to understand, I guess, where, where co-sleeping may be, so where a child can sleep with an adult, um, where it is completely normal would be in a lot of Asian countries, um, ch children and their parents actually, you know, they share the same bed for several years. So that's a variance between Western culture and Asian culture. When we talk about another thing could be, say, for example, uh, physical discipline, or do you smack your child? A variance would be, like, in Sweden, um, there is actually a no-hitting law which has been in effect since 1979. Whereas in countries like... Um, amongst African countries, uh, physical, you know, physically smacking your child is... Um, it's, it's a normal thing. It's not classified as... It's not illegal.
So when we talk about marriage and the variances amongst cultures as well, some of the things to consider are when we're helping individuals that are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds is, you know, and relating it back to marriage is, do they live together before marriage? Um, is it okay in that cultural group for people from the same sex to marry? Do they see each other before the wedding ceremony? Is it okay to elope within that cultural group? Do you have to invite your parents, friends to the wedding? You know, does your father walk you down the aisle? Do you believe in divorce? They're just a few things to consider when we look at marriage and the different, um, and the different perspectives within culture. When we're talking about um, cultural differences, premarital sex is, you know, one of the topics, I guess, that's considered, it's considered particularly unacceptable in predominantly Muslim countries, such as Indonesia, Jordan, Turkey, Pakistan and Egypt. That's just to name a few. Um, with probably about a disapproval rate of about 90% of society would disapprove of uh, premarital sex. A country, uh, well, in people that are living in Western Europe, and by Western Europe, we're talking about you know countries like Germany, France. Um, people living in these countries are actually more accepting of premarital sex. So there's, amongst those, those communities or within that society, there's only about a 10% disapproval rate. So you can see the variance there when we talk about um, premarital sex as just an example when we're discussing marriage. So with family roles, um, there are a lot of different things to consider when we're working within the aged care sector and having to deal with family members um, that are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Uh, you know, one of those things may be within that, within that family group that you're caring for, who, or within that family group of that specific culture, who is the primary carer? Is it the spouse? Is it an adult child? Is it um, collective family members? In most cultures, um, the initial caring role or the primary caring role falls on the spouse, generally. But it is supported by other family members. So, you know, the kids will help the parents and they may have extended family assisting with the care. But when we um, just when we talk about the um, Arab-speaking community and primary care, just as one cultural one cultural example, uh, within that community group, the son is the person who is expected to care for a parent which is requiring care, um, unless there is an unmarried daughter within the family, then that role falls on the daughter. So the expectation there is not the immediate spouse, but the son that is expected to care for their parent. 
Talking about family roles, I guess ways of coping is just a, another variance of that. And they could include things like counselling services, prayer, faith, religion, and support groups. Counselling amongst Polish groups is viewed as too impersonal. So people from Eastern, like Polish individuals, uh, Eastern European individuals, um, tend to feel more comfortable talking to family members um, or even ethnic community or ethnic Polish-speaking community workers that they um, have rapport with within that community. And this is because of the, the ease of communicating as well is one of the main factors and being able to discuss what you need to discuss with someone or communicate with that person in the same language. Uh, is one of those main contributing factors for the Polish community. When we talk about formal and informal supports, um, collective communities tend to use informal supports, uh, whereas individualistic communities are more open to using formal services. So Spanish cultural um, people, Spanish-speaking communities, there's a tendency to use more informal supports as there's a strong cultural influence on the importance of family. Whereas with someone that's from a Russian background, Russian culture, um, they may be from a larger city, a higher level of education, more sound English, they're generally more open to using formal supports. So courtesy, manners, modesty, and concepts of self. And there are a lot of variances with this. Just an example of a few is, um, you know, within specific cultural groups, do they like eating with their hands? Do you kiss someone that you've met for the first time on the cheek? You know, do you cover yourself up when you're in public? Are you a reflective person? Do you bow when you meet someone? So did you guys know that if you cut your potato with a knife in Germany that you actually insult your hostess? Did anyone know that? If, if you cut your potato with a knife, if you've been invited to a meal in Germany and you cut your potato with a knife, that's actually an insult to the hostess. It's not. Okay. Yeah, so you're from a German back, yeah? No, that's, it may be, it may be. <laughs> so if you're, if you're out at a restaurant here and you're having noodles, do you think it's okay to slurp your noodles into your mouth? Sorry? If you were in Japan, it's completely acceptable. Making a noise and slurping your noodles into your mouth is actually, it's a sign that you're enjoying your meal or your noodles or your lunch. So, in India, 
um, you're expected, well, the expectation is that you eat your rice and curry by hand. And um, if you use your left hand, they'll actually um, look at you in disgust. And I guess the reasoning behind that, where some of you would know, would be that um, uh, toileting is generally done with the left hand. So uh, they eat their meals with their right hand. So there's just some variances in different cultures in regards to how they like eating. Do they eat with their hands or not? So moving on and talking about attitudes towards the elderly. And it varies in a lot of different cultural groups. So people who practice the Muslim faith, the elderly, they're revered as valuable members of that family. Um, they reinforce family values and provide a wealth of Islamic knowledge. Um, for an elderly Muslim person, an aged care, uh, as they age, um, care for home is, you know, is their preference, so they would like to be cared for at home. But using respite care um, is acceptable and if need be, they are accepting towards residential facilities as well. Greek culture, they feel the need to protect their elderly from medical uh, prognosis if they're ill. So they wouldn't want, to want their ill parent to know what's actually wrong with them. They believe that if the parent finds out what, it, what if the diagnosis is communicated to the um, ill parent, that they'll give up their hope to live. So they try and keep that information away. In Korean culture, the eldest son is a representative for any communication about the care for the elderly. And the family provides a strong support and encourages family meetings. However, any decisions to be made about the care for their elderly parent is made by that eldest son within the Korean culture. The Maltese regard old age as something holy, and until recently, very few would be seen in care. Family members would typically sacrifice themselves to make the last years of, the aged, of their aged loved one um, happy and peaceful. With the Sikh culture, or Sikh communities, mostly from northern India in the Punjab, um, they encourage their family members to take an active role in the care of their elderly family member that is needing care. And if the Sikh elderly person is ill, the family will bring them water from the temples back, back in Punjabi. Or even, even in Australia, it's seen, you know, um, I guess bringing water into the country, physically carrying it on you is not okay but it's been seen that they do bring water back from the temples to the elderly within their suitcases. Moving on to beliefs and values around death and dying and the cultural variances. I guess some of the variances would be, you know, when someone dies, depending on what culture they're from or what religion they practise, do they bury or do they cremate the deceased? With Buddhists, Christians and Catholics, um, that they can either bury or cremate. Hin with anyone that practices the Hindu faith, cr 
Cremation um, is the only option within that faith. They believe that burning the body releases the spirit, so Hindus don't bury their deceased. With Judaism, Islam and Maori, um, Maori individuals, burial is the only option, so they don't cremate at all. Jews and Muslims, um, you know, they have a similarity within their religion where when a loved one does pass away that, uh, you know, they would like to actually get their loved one, have the funeral and buried within a 24-hour period. And um, there is a ritual around washing the body with those two faiths. When we talk about mourning after a loved one's deceased. And this happens, again, there's a lot of variances with different cultures. With um, individuals from Japanese cultural background, they're not really known for showing emotion in public, um, as this is viewed amongst that community group as a sign of personal weakness. Um, but people that are from African countries, Middle Eastern countries, or even China's, China, there, it's been known that they can actually hire mourners. So individuals actually pay individuals to come along to the funerals to mourn publicly. Talking about decision making, <clears throat> okay, so with the individuals that are requiring care, do they make their own decisions? Oh, you know, the people that you're caring for, do, do they make their own decisions or do they want to consult with their family and friends? Do they seek expert advice? Do they rely on their intuitions? You know, do they take advice from other community members? I guess decisions about care depend on whether the caregiver or the care recipient traditionally make their uh, decisions collectively. Um, so with other family members involved within that decision-making process or individually. And we'll talk a little bit more about um, collective communities and individual communities in a minute. So. Excuse me. <clears throat> yeah, a collective community or a, a high context community is one that's based on valuing the needs of the group or the community over the individual. Kinship, family and community are extremely important amongst these communities and people tend to work together to create harmony and group cohesion um, is extremely, um, extremely valued. And so when we're talking about high-tech context communities, you can see on, on um, the line there that it goes from your low context to your high context. So, those countries that are stated there are mainly high-context communities. Talking about individualistic culture or a low-context community, it's a, 
It's a society that's characterised by individualism. They place a high value on independence, favouring individual rights over communal goals and equal power sharing um, across the culture. Individual, individualistic cultures or communities, they have a very unique communication style. Which it's precise, it's direct and it's specific. So, you know, if they want to know something, they'll ask you a direct, a direct question. Whereas, um, you know, with an individual that's from a, a collective community or a more context community, may not feel as comfortable asking direct questions. So just to sum this up, I'm just going to play this um, short clip also on cultural differences. Do people go to the, uh, to the river with containers to draw water for themselves? For? For busing. You won't take busing. There is something called apartment. I've never had, uh, met, and I've never seen it. Shower. Uh, how does it look like? Shower. I've never used electricity. So I imagine it is really very hard for me to do that. And in the United States, we had this only one wife. These things are going to affect us. The food we got in the plane was not really good as what we used to be eating in, uh, <laughs> say, Akakuba. <laughs> Just like soap, you know, that small one. I don't know if it's soap or bitter. Really. I just see because people say uh, it's food, you know, eat. But when I try to test, it's like soap, actually. And even now, oh, I cannot it? tell. Yeah. Is that meat? Is that milk? Is that ghee? I cannot tell. Potatoes. In Africa, you use to cook it, you know, and you boil it, okay? Yeah, they make it different. No, no, yeah, they, they make it in a different way. They call it chips, you know, they slice it, they fry it, and they put it in a bag, okay? It's ready. It's ready cooked, yes. Try it, it's yours. Everything here has belonged to you. We do not throw things away through the window. We Put here, you press this, push, goes down, right. These are donuts. These are colored sprinkles yeah. that we decorate them with. You want to try one? Want to taste it? Thank you. Yeah. It seems like you're fascinating. Oh. I never. What? That is Senecos. It's Senecos. And how does it connect it with, with the verse of Jesus Christ? I think many of us have so many questions to ask, but I think uh, we have few, few people to answer them. Everything is different. Everything is different. It's kind of irritating because people know you're from Africa. They say, oh, are you from Africa? Yes. Some people, they say, like, do you live in the forest? Nobody's born in the forest. You can't live in the forest. You have to live in a house. 
in the United States, people are not friendly. You can find somebody walking in the street by himself, you know, don't even talk, you know. You cannot go to the house of somebody whom you don't know, though you are all Americans. You call the police, why this guy come to my house and I don't know him. But in Sudan, they can ask you, have you got lost? Are you new to this place? They can ask you. You say, I'm new to this place, they can show you where you are. You can even talk with them. It is important we ask them, how do people work in this area? How do people feel when you ask somebody, now can you show me a way? How do he feel, you know? That's difficult, you cannot even ask him, because these are different people. Huh? That's really difficult, I don't know. How are we going to be acquainted with this life? Eh? It's a great change, actually. Merchants in Daniel and Panther's neighborhood have filed complaints with the local police in Pittsburgh. They feel intimidated by the boys entering their stores in large numbers. So a meeting was called to advise the boys not to travel in groups. Do you find everything really new and different here? Yes. A lot of, um, yeah. do you have a lot of freedom here that you didn't have? Yeah. 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 Yeah, oh, what does it mean? It's a country where I came from. Oh. <laughs> so it's a country of black people, you know. They look oh. black, all of them. You go there, you cannot find white men. Oh. Oh. Huh? Huh? Now we get yes. Okay. I, that's, that video clip is an example of someone who's gone from one culture to another and is trying to adjust. So another topic we'll be discussing is we'll be having a look at some cross-cultural communication, talking about why it's important within, um, you know, within our work lives, within our social lives. Because Australia is an increasingly multicultural country, they're predicting that by about 2021, more than 30% of Australia's older population will have been born outside of Australia. So we're looking at, you know, 30%, 30% of the individuals that are accessing aged care services across Australia are gonna be from, you know, a, born in a country other than Australia, so from a different culturally and linguistically diverse background. The skills we're gonna to have to have when we're working with those individuals is to be able to communicate with them effectively. You know, know what the barriers are, know what strategies you can use to overcome those barriers. If there's resources out there, you know, where, where can you find those resources? Are there organisations that are actually, you know, uh, organisations or associations across New South Wales and ACT where you can, you know, you can access those associations to obtain information about those specific cultures to assist you with communication? 
So some of the barriers over the years that have been identified with um, culturally and linguistically diverse individuals when it comes to cross-cultural communication, the main one is language. It's not the only one, but it is one of the main ones. So, you know, the clients or consumers, patients, residents that you're working with may not be able to understand or speak English well. And there's a lot of reasons why this may be. I mean, when we look at um, migration to Australia, a lot of those individuals that are actually accessing the aged care services at the moment didn't have the opportunity to go and formally learn English when they migrated to Australia, whether the migration was forced or voluntary. Even the partners of those individuals may not have had the opportunity to learn English. Um, it could be, you know, they had to stay at home and look after the kids. So uh, th there are, you know, there's a lot of factors. Um, you know, they, maybe they had to go straight into the workforce. And it wasn't uncommon um, back, I guess, in the 70s with a lot of, you know, skilled migration coming across Australia where, or, um, people coming over to work, where they'd go into a job where other people working there actually spoke the language that they spoke, so they didn't have the need to talk English within, even within their work environment. So they were going to work and speaking their mother tongue and then they were at home and within their, you know, community speaking that same language. With clients or individuals um, that may not be able to read and write English or even their own language, they may not have had the opportunity to have a higher level of education or higher schooling, which is, uh, it is actually quite common amongst the older migrants. You know, schooling in a lot of Europe, a lot of, across a lot of Europe, Eastern, Western Europe was, um, they would have schooling primarily until the end of primary school and then enter the workforce. Depending on where they were from within that country, you know, if they were from, you know, the main large cities, from the villages, it made a really big difference as to, you know, how, how much they could further their education. And if someone doesn't read or write English or even their own language, um, you know, don't assume literacy. Lack of information that's available with client, like with your, in, within that individual's language, depending on what the needs of that individual are, you know, are there resources within the sector that can assist that individual, you know? Even some of the resources that are out there is the language that's used within that resource, is it, um, is it basic language? Is it, uh, I guess, the terminology that's used, is, are those individuals gonna be able to understand what they're reading, even though it is within their own language? Talking about the differences with the non-verbal communication as well. So non-verbal communication is actually a, a large part of how we communicate with other people. Does anyone know, I guess, uh, just a percentage-wise, how much 
nonverbal communication we use compared to verbal communication. So our, our non-verbal communication is actually, it's approximately 90% of how we communicate and our verbal or the spoken word is about 10%. Just to give you an idea of how much non-verbal communication we use. <clears throat> so talking about cultural appropriateness, you know, one of the barriers is a lack of understanding and respect for the different practices, norms and values um, of other cultures and a lack of awareness around, you know, the roles of gender, age roles and power roles. It's a big factor when it comes to communicating with individuals that are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. So with verbal communication, we just need to remember, you know, um, with all of us, we didn't have lessons or formal lessons to learn what our native tongue is, whether it is English or another language. Um, usually it's an unconscious learning and it's done in your early years. Um, through communicating with the people in your household, your parents, your siblings, with that language. And um, trying, I guess, trying with verbal communication, trying to learn uh, a new language or a different language uh, in the later years of your life, whether you're a teenager or older, it does become increasingly more difficult and even if you do learn it, um, you know, if you don't practice language that you've learnt later on, you do tend to, tend to forget what you've learnt. People that have actually, um, that may have an accent uh, and you know, there's a lot of people that we, we all have an accent. Every, everybody has an accent. But a person with a, just because a person's got a foreign accent, you know, there are myths around it. If a person's got a foreign accent, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily not proficient in English. Or if a person's got a foreign accent, that person is uneducated or from a lower class or inferior or not intelligent. So having an accent merely means that that individual learnt to speak English um, over the age of puberty or uh, they learnt to speak English in a place other than Australia. Even if they learnt to speak English in Australia um, under the age of puberty, it may be without enough exposure to um, native English speakers. So sending clearer messages with our verbal communication. So most of us in the room would work with um, 
consumers or clients or residents that are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. And to ensure that we're sending clear messages to those individuals, it's, it's good practice to speak clearly and simply without being simplistic or patronising. You know, clarify meanings, yours and theirs, if required. And like, generally when you're communicating with someone, if they haven't understood what you're saying, you would feel that. When, um, I guess, when you're using your non-verbal, others' verbal or non-verbal, but you know, be careful what your non-verbal communication is when you're communicating verbally with individuals. Be particularly conscious um, of figurative language as well uh, with, you know, Australian slang. I mean, there's a lot of things that we say that may, for someone to um, hear that for the first time, they may not necessarily know what we're talking about. You know, like I can say to my son, I'm going to the servo to buy a packet of ciggies, all right, I'll be back in five. You know, if you said that to someone that wasn't very proficient in English, do you think they would know what you were talking about? Probably not. Even words like, uh, you know, saying things like see you later or hang on. You know, take a seat. They might physically, physically pick the seat up and take it. Um, hold on. You know, what are you after? <coughs> if you just hop over to that counter over there. You know, then they hop on one foot to the counter over there. <laughs> Can I give you a hand? Feel free to pick my brains. <laughs> you know, or, you know, we'll bend over backwards to help you. I'm just going to pop you on hold. <laughs> You know, it's important to, you know, uh, try and avoid jargon in general and organisational jargon as well. You know, with people that may not be very proficient in English or trying to send clearer messages, um, you know, to avoid jokes and slang and negative questions may be confusing when you're trying to communicate with those individuals. So, talking, you know, we were talking about English being, um, English can be a very challenging language. And these are just some examples of, you know, written English that may be confusing to someone. It's where it's, the word is spelt the same, but has different meanings. Can, it can be used within that same sentence as well. Um, and not knowing what the different meanings are of a particular word may confuse someone that's not proficient. Like the bandage is wound around the wound or, you know, the farm is used to produce produce or a soldier decided to desert his dessert in the desert. <laughs> I did not object to the object. Since there is no time like the present, the thought is... Sorry. Since there is no time like the present, he thought it was time to present the present. 
I shared my clothes in the shed. You know, they were too close to the door to close it. It is a very challenging language and they're just some examples, you know, to, just to keep in mind. So this is one of the last clips I'll be playing and that's, um, it's a little clip on Australian slang, which, you know, I, some people use it, some people don't, you know, it's good to just to have a little bit of an understanding of it. Okay, hi. So I get asked all the time to make a video about Aussie slang, right? Now, I've got to say, a lot of the Aussie slang stuff is not so much present or relevant in, certainly not in city life, and I guess among young people it's kind of dying out, but I do have a resource because my parents happen to live in the country and they're older. And um, I've come up with a list of about 25 Aussie slangs. Let's just get right into it. Tracky dacks are tracksuit pants. A bludger is a lazy person. To be stoked is to be really happy or pleased. A snag is a sausage, which you might throw on the barbie. To come a guster is to have an accident or make a mistake. And another one for accident is like car accident, you could say, you could call that a prank. A pash is like making out. I guess like passionate kiss. Want a pash? <laughs> you might want a pash with a sheila. A sheila is a woman. An old fella is a penis. A bottle O is a liquor store where you might buy a stubby, which is a bottle of beer, or a tinny, which is a can of beer. And I've noticed that a lot of the Aussie slang references animals. Somebody who's mad as a cut snake is very angry. Now, I don't get this one at all, but to be grinning like a shot fox is apparently somebody who's really like smugly smiling or grinning. It's a pretty horrible image to think about. To be flat out like a lizard drinking is to be really busy. A rat bag. Now I think, I remember my mum calling me a rat bag when I was a kid. I think it means kids that are like out of control or misbehaving children. And somebody who, somebody who has a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock is somebody who's mentally challenged. You also might say that person is off their rocker. Nah mate, he's just got a few kangaroos loose in the top paddock. If something is shonky, it's of poor quality or counterfeit. But if something's real and genuine, it's true blue. Or fair dinkum. If you crack on to somebody, you're flirting with them. A durry is a cigarette, but a dunny is a bathroom. And an outdoor bathroom is called a shithouse. And you can say that somebody is built like a shithouse, and that means that they're like, you know, big and strong, like a buff dude. No wonder tourists have such a hard time when they come here. It's even confusing for us locals. <laughs> have a great weekend. Okay, bye. So thick and salty. So that's just some examples of Australian slang. Ha hand up if you've ever used any of those slang words. You know, for someone, maybe um, the aged care workforce at the moment has a lot of individuals that have um, come to Australia as uh, newer migrants and they've entered the aged care sector workforce. 
working with, just an example is, say someone that had no knowledge of Australian slang was providing personal care to an older Australian-born farmer in a residential aged care facility. You know, she's taken him to the shower and she's washing him and he goes, hang on, love, I'm going to wash my old fella myself. Do you think she'd know what he was talking about? Do you think it's a common occurrence? Yeah. You know, we can't expect our, you know, our residents or clients to be... We can't expect them to stop using the language that they're accustomed to using. I guess the only thing we can do is just be aware of the language that we use when we're talking to people. <clears throat> so just to do a quick case study or a scenario, I'm going to read out a paragraph in regards to Natasha. Um, and it relates to communicating with a client from a culturally and linguistically diverse background and just, you know, ask a few questions. So Natasha is a 72-year-old woman of Eastern European appearance. She approached a receptionist of a community centre. She spoke with a very strong accent. The receptionist then asked for her name by speaking very slowly and in a loud voice. The receptionist repeated the request three times, drawing the attention of the whole centre. Natasha looked very unhappy and went away. So, would speaking loudly and slowly help the communication problem, in your opinion? Loudly, like making, you know, saying those words louder. If that person's not understanding you, it doesn't matter how loud you say the word, they're still not going to understand what you're saying. How might the client, or how might Natasha be feeling after being spoken to this way? Not feeling very good about herself. So, and, and this one, just take this question back with you and just think, you know, if you were that receptionist within that service, what would you have done differently um, to break that communication barrier with Natasha? And I think the main issue, I guess, in that scenario is the fact that she did have a very strong accent and she may have been talking English, but the receptionist still wasn't understanding her. And this is just a little slide on the use of interpreters and bilingual, uh, bilingual workers. Um, uh, I guess by law within Australia, professional interpreting, um, professional interpreting is a specialised skill and you are required to be um, trained and NATI accredited to be a professional interpreter. Professional interpreters generally within the sector are used for medical purposes, legal and anything which relates to financial or confidential situations. 
Whereas, by, how many people in the room, put your hand up if you actually speak a ling language other than English. So we've got a few bilingual workers in the room. Bilingual workers within the aged care sector um, are, can be used to assist with clients and residents that they're working with within their services um, with activities of daily living. These are just the elements of communication that we discussed before, so your verbal and your non-verbal. So having a look at some gestures that may have um, different meanings, which is your non-verbal communication. Um, these gestures may, may be offensive in some cultures, so it's just to be aware of when you're using a hand gesture or you know, any type of non-verbal body language or gesture um, that it may maybe um, have a different meaning in a different culture. So your circle finger, the circle finger, like we would say, okay. That's, you know, to form a circle with your finger. Um, does anyone, is anyone aware of any cultures that that gesture may be offensive in or have a different meaning? So the okay gesture, um, it can be obscene in some places such as Brazil and Germany. It's actually uh, the gesture to describe a bodily orifice. So in France, that, that same gesture means uh, zero or worthless. And in Japan, that's the okay gesture actually means money. So you can see the, the variances with those different cultural groups. Beckoning with the index finger in most parts of the world is considered extremely rude. Did anyone know that to sit with the soles of your feet um, or shoe showing could be offensive to anyone? So exposing the lowest or the dirtiest part of your body shows disrespect in many Asian cultures. Nodding your head up and down to say yes, um, it doesn't actually you know, necessarily mean yes in, in different countries or in different cultural groups. So just to have that awareness. To pat, who's ever patted someone on the head? A child maybe pat our dogs, but <laughs> um, to pat someone on the head um, in Southeast Asia, many people believe that the spirit or the soul resides in the head of an individual and it's, it's actually considered very disrespectful to touch another person on the head, including children. You know, in some cultures, passing an item to somebody else with one hand may be offensive. You know, they, the ex expectation may to be used both hands. And smiling, smiling, you know, it may be a universal gesture, um, but smiling often or infrequently does vary from culture, culture to culture. And every culture has um, rules for social interaction as well. 
An example of that would be, you know, um, eye contact when you're talking to another person. Uh, you know, eye contact when you're talking, say for example, if talking to a Taiwanese resident, you know, to have direct eye contact would be classified, you know, would be um, viewed as being very disrespectful within that culture. But it is an expectation in the West. So, you know, in Australia, if you're not actually looking at someone in the eye when you're talking to them, the, you know, the, the thing is the, they probably think you're not even listening to them. So you're expected to look at someone in the eye when they're talking to you. Culture also um, greatly influences attitudes about physical contact. <clears throat> So South American, people from South American cultural backgrounds, you know, they like to stand close to the other person when they're communicating with them. So um, I guess uh, in, in Australia we talk about personal space, like so we stand a fair distance from someone, we don't get directly in their face when we're having a discussion with them. Whereas in South America it's completely normal to be standing very close to someone when you're talking to them and it's not seen as invading their private space. In Northern European countries, you are seen as invading private space if you're standing too close. And different cultures regulate displays of emotion differently. There's so many, you know, so many examples that can be given there as well. So some cultures use different standards for loudness, you know, the speed of delivery of what they're saying, you know, the silence that, or the pauses that they have between their words, attentiveness, and how long they take to actually respond to what's being said to them. These are all the things that are your nonverbal communication um, that has different rules in social interaction and communicating with individuals from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds. Coming to the end of it, these are just some strategies um, to use, and we've talked about all of them throughout today. So, um, to effectively communicate with another person, you know, speak slowly and clearly, use short and simple sentences. So, if the people you're, you know, communicating with um, don't have a high English proficiency, try and keep it simple. Maintain normal volume, use different words to express the same idea, avoid jargon, respond to expressed emotions, but also be aware of what your emotions or your own feelings are. So have the awareness that people from some cultural backgrounds, that they may avoid disagreement at the expense of being honest. So, you know, they might really want to say no, but um, will still tell you, yes, that's fine. So if you're serving up to, um, say, someone from an Asian culture, uh, they may really want coffee, but because you're serving up tea, they don't want to put you out and make you go get them a coffee when you're serving tea. So you ask them, would you like a cup of tea? They'll say yes, instead of no, thank you. Can you get me a cup of coffee? Allow time for questions and clarification and use communication aids if necessary. Anyone in the room used communication tools 
when you're communicating with um, your clients or residents. Yeah. There's a lot of tools that are out there that you can access. Um, there's about 20 different culturally specific organisations across New South Wales. Most of them are in the Sydney metro area or Western Sydney, Inner West, etc. Um, that are specific to cultures that have resources that you can use. The Centre for Cultural Diversity um, in Victoria is actually the PCAC for Victoria and they were specifically funded to produce um, cultural communication resources in 25 different languages. So that's another, another service or another um, somewhere else where you can obtain resources to assist with communication. And with tech, and Mac has a, has a cultural library where you can borrow resources, physical resources. With technology these days though, um, if you use a smartphone or an Android phone, there are apps that you can actually get that um, have, you know, no that don't cost you anything that can assist you with communicating. Thank you all today. I've come to the end of it. I hope you've enjoyed the presentation. I'll be um, around for about 10 or 15 minutes if you'd like to have a chat or ask me anything in particular. Um, and enjoy your lunch. Thank you. We've got time to take some questions for Savin Schiff. Anybody's got any? We do have a microphone. Uh, Maps will walk round. Does anybody have any questions for Savin? Okay. Yeah, I got the question. Okay, so Savinch is actually, um, I'm of Turkish origin. I was born in Wollongong Hospital. So my parents, <laughs> my parents migrated to Australia back in the early 70s. Dad came to Wollongong to work in the steelworks. Um, and my name actually translates into the word happy. So <laughs> any other questions? Look, if you've got any questions, um, I've put the, the PCAC um, website on there. You can actually flick inquiries through that as well. Um, and we have the contact details. I, I don't know if I've got them on there, but I've got cards. So if anyone wants a card to flick me an email later, um, just come up and I can um, give you one. So thank you. Thank you.